Now, the reading is coming from three separate parts of the Bible. If you want to find them in advance, the first one is Luke chapter 24, and it's verses 45 to the end, and it's on page 1062. We're going to follow that with Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and that's on page 1092. And finally, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Daniel 7, and that's on page 892. So beginning at Luke. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he raised up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. <clears throat> In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven.
In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And if I were pretty well in any time of the year to talk to you about Christmas, you'd all um, more or less understand what the theme of the sermon, the talk, might be. But um, today I want to talk about Ascension Day. And uh, it's hidden away between Easter and Pentecost or Trinity Sunday and very rarely noticed because it always falls on a Thursday. So I thought we'd give it some attention this morning, albeit in August. Let's pray before we do that. Those words that Rob read to us from the beginning of the Luke passage. Then he, that is Jesus, opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And if it was necessary then, it's equally necessary today that you and I both need the Spirit of God to illuminate our minds, that we understand the significance of what we read in the Bible. So help us, we pray, dear Father, to do that as we reflect on the ascension of Jesus. May it be for our good and for your greater glory. Amen. I won't remember the references that Rob gave out to us, but um, the sequence is deliberate. We start with the gospel, we go to Acts, and then we seemingly go back, but in fact we don't, we go forward to the book of Daniel. And if you want to follow, I'm sure you'll manage one way or another. I wonder if you've had the kind of conversation with a friend or family member who may not yet be a Christian, when he or she says something like this, if God exists, then why doesn't he do something dramatic so people like me have some evidence to go on? And they're thinking about something visible, dramatic, that would make the international headlines probably. Or maybe as a Christian, weighing up the challenge of how do you share your Christian faith today in an age which is so hostile, certainly in the West, to Christian truth. You might have this kind of thought. Wouldn't it have been a whole lot easier if, after he rose from the dead, Jesus had stayed around here on earth? All we'd have to do in that case would be to organise visits to and from his base, which would presumably be Jerusalem, uh, 
and people could have it out with him face to face about what they do or don't believe. Instead, what we get is what we heard read in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. After Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. It, it's kind of an anticlimax. It seems perhaps such a bad strategy. If you and I were planning the way to do things, we wouldn't have Jesus, who is after all the key witness to substantiate all the claims across the ages that Christians have made. You wouldn't have him disappear at this crucial moment through the clouds. I need hardly remind the men present that the soccer season has just started. Um, it always seems to be slightly out of place when it's still summer, but there you are. But it's almost as if, thinking of whatever it may be, our preferred sport, it's almost as if our best player by far is substituted at the beginning of the season or just as the game is about to begin. Needless to say, the Bible doesn't support this kind of argument. And the Bible writers, inspired by God, have their reasons. Neither, might I add, do the great Christian thinkers who've written and spoken on these themes across the ages uh, John Owen, who lived in the 17th century and was probably one of the greatest Christian thinkers this land has ever produced. Sadly to say, he's rarely read nowadays, but that's to our loss. But he insisted in his writings time and again that there could be no salvation, no mission, no evangelism without the ascension. No salvation, no mission, no evangelism without the ascension. In other words, the physical absence of Jesus is better for us than would be his continued physical presence. And Luke understood this well. And that's why in his Gospel, and again in Acts, both of which he wrote, he linked both books, the first and the second part of the story of Jesus, he linked it with reference to the ascension of Jesus. So look with me, if you will, at the end of Luke's Gospel. That's chapter 24, and I'm going to read again verses 50 to 53. 
when they led him out to the vicinity, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, Jesus lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually in the temple, praising God. And uh, perhaps more than I have done on previous occasions, when I read that passage again this last week, I was struck by that phrase, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. It seems strange, doesn't it? Their Lord and their friend had been taken away from them. But they'd understood enough of what had happened for their lives to be filled with worship, joy, and praise. And that should maybe a slight wake-up call for us contemporary Christians. For then as now, the ascension of Jesus should bring us great confidence. And yet the sad reality is that for many of us it figures very low, as it were, on our spiritual horizon. I wonder if this helps. Um, if you ever move in the world of diplomats and national press reporters, you may be one of them. Folk will often speak out of our man in Washington or our man in Cape Town or our man at the United Nations. And we understand what they're talking about. But for us as Christians, Jesus is our man in heaven. He's there for us and on our behalf. He's our representative in heaven. By his very presence there, not here, he makes our salvation secure. So it's really with those thoughts in mind that I want to leave you with three observations this morning about the ascension of Jesus. The first one is this. The ascension helps us to understand better the Old Testament scriptures. The closest parallel in the Old Testament to the ascension of Jesus is what happened to Moses on Mount Sinai. And if you want to read about that, uh, when you get home, it's in Exodus chapter 24. Put briefly, Moses ascended the mountain on behalf of God's people, and he came before God, where God himself was hidden by a cloud. That was the Exodus 24 experience. But this is exactly what happened with the ascension of Jesus. He ascends on behalf of God's people 
people like you and me. He ascends on behalf of people like us before God, where again God is hidden by a cloud. But the unique and significant difference is this that Jesus does not ascend to the top of a mountain. He ascends to heaven itself. Now, I might have added in this first observation about the ascension helping us to understand the Old Testament scriptures, the ascension also helps us to understand the New Testament scriptures, and not least the letter to the Hebrews. It's well nigh impossible to understand the letter of the Hebrews without understanding what it's alluding to in the Old Testament and the way the author points us to Jesus through that. For he insists that Jesus is the reality to which all that has gone before are just pointers. They're shadows of the reality to come. So Hebrews tells us, for example, that our rescue, our salvation is complete when Jesus stands before God, his Father, and ours on our behalf. And if you want to note the verse, it's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, which says precisely that, and I quote it, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So in the first instance, the ascension helps us to understand Scripture, especially the Old Testament. But secondly, the ascension of Jesus gives us assurance and confidence about our true home. Now, it's, it's a fascinating, but not particularly well-known fact, that all sorts of studies have been done about the way their jobs affect diplomats and their children in just the same way that studies have been done about how being missionaries, mission partners, affects missionaries and their children on this issue of where do we belong. If you've lived and worked in any other place than the country, the area in which you were born, it makes a difference to how you settle down in other places. The fact of the matter is you never do it completely. Somehow there's always that sense of not being totally part of the local scene. And a lot of people uh, who go through that experience, obviously, need help in coming to terms with not only the great privileges that they've enjoyed, but also the disadvantages of not having the deepest of roots anywhere here on earth. But you can probably see what I'm getting at. Jesus has ascended. He's gone to his Father and ours. He's the sign, the reminder, the pledge, 
the guarantee that the place where we truly belong is in the presence of God in heaven. And that should be something to a lesser or greater sense every single one of us as Christians understand. You and I may have lived all our lives in exactly the same place. Nevertheless, if you are a Christian, you never totally belong here on earth. And we make the struggle to understand contemporary society around us even harder if we fail to understand that we'll never fully understand it because our starting point is scripture in a way that it isn't for the majority around us. And scripture clearly teaches that for Christians, the place where we truly belong is heaven itself in the presence of God. Let me spell that out a little bit more. Our salvation, our being Christians, is safe and secure as long as Christ, our Saviour, is in heaven. That's why the ascension is or should be such good news for us as Christian believers. The Bible says that on the final day when Jesus returns, he doesn't leave, as it were, heaven behind, but rather brings it with him. And we see the creation with his return of a new heaven and a new earth. Now, needless to say, this is very difficult for us to get our minds around. It's what some will refer to as deep mystery. But there it is in the Bible. If you look at the last chapters of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, in chapter 21, verse 3, you've got this said, Behold, the dwelling place... That is the tabernacle, the the visible presence of God is with man. He will dwell with them, that is Christians. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. I hope that brings you, as it does me, immense assurance and confidence about who we are and where we belong. But let me finally say this. The ascension of Jesus tells us that his kingdom is a kingdom that can never be destroyed. And that's where, amongst other Bible passages, that brief passage we read from Daniel chapter 7 comes into its own. And uh, I'll be quoting from that in just a moment. Let me say that again. The ascension of Jesus tells us that his is a kingdom that can never be destroyed. You see, around us in the world as it is, that 
is a nonsense statement. We've read some of us reports in recent weeks of the decline of church going in this part of the West, and it's evidently true if you measure it in terms of old buildings that are redundant or semi-redundant. But by no means is that the story worldwide. Let me put it like this. When you and I went to bed last night, Jesus was at work exercising his kingly rule. While we slept, Jesus continued to rule over the world. He still ruled as we prepared to get ready to come to church this morning. However, wildly out of step with the world's understanding of reality, it may seem the scriptures and Luke in this context insist on reminding us that Jesus is king and Jesus is Lord. Although it may not be the primary focus of today's Sunday newspapers. But then, of course, Luke was no fool. Luke was no simpleton. In his day, he was well aware that Roman soldiers were tramping the streets of Jerusalem and imposing Roman rule. But still, he portrays Jesus as God's king. I must confess that at this point I sat wondering uh, what are contemporary illustrations of the wonder of the kingly rule of Jesus and um, perhaps because it is August what came to mind was taking off um, say from Gatwick airport on a dark dismal dreary day perhaps a typical summer day here in the UK and heading off on holiday and to begin with, the plane in which we're seated, as we look out of the window, climbs up through the gloom. And you perhaps wonder, will it ever end? But suddenly, you emerge into brilliant sunshine, and there below you is an ocean of puffy white cloud. And that, in a sense is what we've got if we think through the sequence of Luke 24, a purely earthbound observation about the ascension, to Acts chapter 1, where we get glimpses of more with the promises of the angelic beings that Jesus will return. But when we get to Daniel, what he shows us is as it were from the other side, as Jesus moved through the clouds, not into earth's upper atmosphere, but into heaven itself. And of course, something infinitely greater than holidays is here. You may have had, or be planning to have, the most fantastic holiday this summer, but it is nothing compared with what we have to come. And that's a great thought. Daniel, of course, didn't see it 
in the sense that we might. He sees all of this hundreds of years before the events that are recorded in Luke's Gospel and at the opening of the Acts of the Apostles. He sees it in a vision. And here I quote Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 again. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see, we're looking at the ascension from above, from God's perspective. And I wonder if it reminds you of the end of Matthew's Gospel, which of course is very similar to what we have at the end of Luke, with the difference that the phrase in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, is this, all authority... Do you see the significance of that? It's not said in a vacuum. Where's this coming from? It's coming from the Daniel 7 passage. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Wisely, as we came in this morning, Judy said, don't be too long. I'm very tempted at this point, not so much to digress, but to spell out the wonder of those words of Jesus in the context of Daniel 7 for Christian mission. We're blessed as a church to have people working in different parts of the world. We ourselves represent that comprehensiveness in the best sense, that Catholicity of the church here in St. Mary's. But you see, Jesus not only commands us to go, he protects us as we go. He provides for us as we go. All of that is clearly taught in Scripture. But we have to go. For the ascension is foundational for living for the king and speaking out in his name wherever we live. Then, as Luke wrote, the world, the civilised world at least, was proclaiming that Caesar in Rome was Lord. He had the final word. And the Christians said, no. Jesus is Lord. Then, as now, the ascension puts Jesus firmly at the centre of all decision-making. And politicians and preachers alike need to remember that. He, not we, he has the final word. 
But of course, the calling for the majority of us, then as now, is to stay where we are and to be faithful as Christians in the place where he's put us. Here at home, as it were, as opposed to out there overseas. But we do need to be faithful for our sake, for the sake of our children, and for the sake of their children, we need to regain our confidence in living out our Christian beliefs and speaking out as appropriate and as the Spirit guides us into the public arena around us, which is so hostile to the kingship of Jesus. Let's do that remembering that he is with us to the end of the age. Let's pray. Just a moment to reflect on those Bible passages as God indeed will have spoken by his spirit to each of us. Almighty God and Father, we thank you that the head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now and we celebrate with joy the kingship of Jesus. And we pray that for the sake of this and future generations, we may to learn to live our lives, living out and speaking out as Christians. And we pray this for the good of so many around us, and for your greater glory. Amen.